All right. If you would, please go ahead and open up your Bibles to Psalm chapter 7. I'm going to go back and get my water. Sorry. I'm going to need that. Psalm chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, just grab the Black Pew Bible in front of you and turn to page 450, and that'll get you there. On January 18th, 2019, Nicholas Sandman, a Catholic high school student, was part of a pro-life demonstration near the Lincoln Memorial. And Nathan Phillips, a Native American activist, was also there, and he was participating in an unrelated demonstration. At one point, though, Sandman and Phillips were standing face to face. Phillips was banging a drum inches from Sandman's face and was chanting, while Sandman stood still. He was unflinching, and he had this big smirk on his face. And all of this was caught on video, and it spread like wildfire. And just like you would expect, uh, it was widely reported that Sandman had provoked Phillips, that he had been shouting vulgarities about women, and that the crowd of boys around him were chanting racial slurs and were egging on this big confrontation. And so Twitter does what Twitter will do. The Twitter mob was stirred up in a frenzy and it came out of the woodworks and they were ready to bring this young boy down along with his classmates in the school. These actions were indeed horrible, except none of them were true. Video evidence and further investigation soon revealed that Salmon, in fact, did not provoke the activist, but instead Phillips is the one who approached Salmon first. And there was no chanting or egging going on behind them from the classmates. There was no evidence of vile language being used towards the women. There was no racial slurs. The whole narrative was, in fact, a lie. It was all fabricated, and it was all done on purpose. So what did Sandman do? Well, he took his case before a judge, and he, he pleaded his innocence, and he asked for justice against those who defamed him. So let me be clear. I am not the least bit concerned with any of the left or right-wing politics behind that story. It's not the point at all. But what it does illustrate is the power of slander to defame someone who is innocent and the need for a judge to bring slanderers to an account. In this morning's text, David's name is also slandered. But it isn't caught on video. The verdict from the court of public opinion is in, and he is guilty. There is no way for David to clear his name. There is no recourse. And so David, he isn't being threatened by a Twitter mob, but instead he is being hunted down by bloodthirsty murderers. No human judge will hear his case. All hope for David seems to be lost. So, David does the only thing that he can do. He cries out to God. He cries out to a just judge, asking him to deliver him from wickedness. So here's what he writes in Psalm chapter 7. Please follow along with me as I read. A Shigion of David 
which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion I tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who fills indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Let's pray. Holy God, this is your word. It is true, it is infallible, it is without error. It is sufficient. Lord, would you come? Would you speak to us through your word? Would you comfort us in our pain? Would you give us understanding about the judgment to come? And would you help us to rejoice in that future judgment and that glory? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got three points for you this morning. Point number one, Cush the slanderer. Point number two, David the righteous. And point number three, uh, God the judge. Point number one, Cush the slanderer. The heading says this psalm is written concerning the words of Cush the Benjamite. Who is Cush the Benjamite? Well, it's hard to know for sure. Everything that we know about Cush is right here in this psalm, and there isn't a lot. But we do have some clues. We can get a general idea of who he is. We know that Cush is a Benjamite. So why is that significant? Well, that's significant because David was on the run from Saul, who was a Benjamite and the leader of the Benjamite tribe. Not only was Saul the leader of the Benjamite tribe, but Saul was also the king over all of Israel. And he was not a good one. He was a disobedient king. 
He was always thinking that he knew better than God. And as a result, the prophet Samuel told Saul that God was going to tear away his kingdom and he was going to give it to someone else, someone who was better than him. And as you would expect, Saul and the Benjamites, they weren't prepared to let the kingdom go so easily. Saul eventually learned that the better man who was going to take over the kingdom was David. At first, Saul wasn't worried about this little upstart, right? Why should I be worried about a dirty shepherd boy from Bethlehem? But David, he became a rock in Saul's sandal. And eventually, Saul became deranged and angry. He was hurling spears at him whenever he saw him in his court. When he was in his court because Saul was the one who invited him to come, as a matter of fact. And so David did the smart thing. He fled for his life. And he ran out into the wilderness in the surrounding area. And so it's likely that Cush was an ally of Saul, just like most of the Benjamites. They were eager for their tribe leader to maintain the throne of Israel. Saul was a token of their superiority. He was a type of tribal treasure. So how then, how then did Cush aid Saul against David? Well, we know that David wrote this psalm about the words of Cush the Benjamite. He says that in the heading. Again, we don't know exactly what Cush said, but we do have some clues. Look at verse 14, where David says, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. So it seems that David is being persecuted by a wicked man who has thought up a mischievous plan against David, a plan that includes lying and deception. So look also at verses 3 through 4. David says this, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause. So David says, if I have done this. Well, done what? We don't know, but whatever this wicked man has accused him of doing, that's what he has not done, if I have done this. So when you put all this together, all the clues start to form a picture. And this is what emerges. Cush the Benjamite is an ally of the throne of Saul. And he has concocted a plan to get David killed. To use the language from verse 14, Cush has conceived evil. He is pregnant with a mischievous idea. I can almost imagine, kind of like Jim Carrey's The Grinch, when Cush conjures up this idea, uh, a big goofy smile bolts across his face like he's about to ruin Christmas. Only this time, it isn't funny. And Cush is coming for blood. He's realized that he can destroy an innocent man with fiction. He can destroy David with slander. Well, what exactly is slander? For one, slander is repeatedly called sin in the Old Testament. And it also has the honor of making the New Testament vice lists uh, almost all of them. That is like when the New Testament authors list a bunch of sins in a row, slander almost always makes the cut. So it's a particularly vile thing. And the fact that it shows up so often indicates that 
slander is a common weapon in the arsenal of the ungodly. So by definition, to slander someone is to make false and damaging statements about them. It's to defame them. You might say it's a kind of premeditated and weaponized gossip. If gossip is a result of loose lips, then slander is a result of scheming lips. The slanderer sees someone in his way, and he's, he's jealous. He's full of hatred, whatever it is. And he's awake at night. He stares at his ceiling, and he's plotting. He's concocting some way that he can bring this innocent man down. And then it dawns on him. Perhaps I can deceive his boss or his wife or his church into believing some horrible lie about his character. He says, aha, I don't have to poison him. I can poison the world against him. Even in our modern day society, we recognize just how evil that kind of scheming, that kind of intentional violence really is. We call it premeditation, right? The difference between first and second degree murder is premeditation. The slanderer isn't caught off by his guard or caught off by his wicked desire, caught off guard by his wicked desire. It's not a moment of passionate gossip, right? But he has taken that desire and he's, he's moved it in and he's made it comfortable. He's at home with this wicked desire to kill this man or to ruin his life. And as he chews on it, and as he, as he hangs out with this evil desire, eventually a plan is born, a mischievous idea to do violence, to destroy. And it leads to the destruction, ultimately, of the innocent. And slander works. Someone can be white as snow, but a skillful slanderer can cover them in mud. That's exactly what happened to Jesus isn't it? Our own Savior knows what it's like to be the victim of this crime. Jesus was holy and completely innocent of any wrong. He was without sin. And yet, a kangaroo court was set up, and false witnesses were brought in to slander his name, to try to get something to stick. They couldn't actually pin anything on him. He was perfect, He's the sinless son of God. But the truth is no match for a lie oft repeated. And eventually, the mud stuck. And he was condemned. And he was led away and executed unjustly. Well, similarly, Cush was dragging David's name through the mud in hopes of seeing him destroyed. Which brings us to point number two, David the Righteous. David the Righteous. Because of Cush's slander, at least in part, David is being pursued by his enemies. We see that in verses 1 and 2. He says, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. The men who were after David have been stirred up into a a crazy mob and they're bloodthirsty. 
They want to get a hold of him and rip him apart, limb from limb. And they don't want to just rip his body apart, limb from limb. He says if they could get a hold of his soul, they would rip that apart too. David is like an antelope. He's fleeing across the wilderness. He's being chased by a crazed and starved lion. And it feels to David like it will only be a matter of time before he will be caught in that lion's jaw and that he will be shredded into pieces and that the team that would come to save him would find that there's nothing left to save. Who will be able to deliver him then? But notice where David turns during his time of distress. He says in verse 1, that he takes refuge in the Lord. There's only one being in the universe that David trusts to be able to protect him in his time of need. And that is, as he says again in verse 3, the Lord my God. Friends, I hope you know God like that. He's not just some mystical, unknowable being sitting up in the sky. He's not the clockmaker God who just wound up this universe and then now he just watches it from a distance. No, you can be as near to God as a man can be inside of a shelter. I hope you know him like that personally, where you could say with David that he is your Lord and that he is your God. Oh, that you would feel deep down in your bones, Christian. That God is an anchor. That he is your fortress. That he is your ever-present help in time of need. That he is a protective father. That he is, as David says in verse 10, your shield. We're so quick, aren't we, to trust in something else, some other name, some other man-made invention, maybe just ourselves and our own strength. But these shelters, they pale in comparison to God. So may we, like David, quickly and often take refuge in him and in him alone. But it causes us to ask, how does David take refuge in the Lord? When he's out in the desert, is there a fortress, an actual castle that God put out there, complete with a drawbridge and turrets that David can walk into and and finally find safety and hide away in? No, right? Of course not. For David, taking refuge in the Lord means bringing his case before him. Much like those who feel wrong today might bring their case before the court, so David takes his case before heaven's court in search of justice. Through prayer, David pleads directly to the judge of all the universe. That's how he makes him his refuge. So first, David offers a self-examination. Look at verses 3 and 5, 3 through 5, as well as verse 8. He says, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil, or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. The Lord judges the peoples 
Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. So David is saying to the judge, look, there are a group of men out there and they're trying to kill me. And if I'm guilty, then fine. That's what I deserve. Then, then let them tear me apart. But if I'm not guilty, then I need you to do something for me. And David knows that he's not guilty of Cush's accusations. He says he doesn't repay evil to his friends. He doesn't wrongly plunder his enemies. Again, we don't know the specifics of the accusations, but what we do know is that David is entirely sure of his integrity, even though he is being smeared. In fact, he's so sure that he asks God to judge him according to his own righteousness. So he says, right, in verse 8, judge me according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. David actually says to God, Lord, give me what I deserve. Now, uh, we take the Bible very seriously here. And so uh, we know that no one is righteous before God. We know that no one wants to be given what they deserve from God. So, David, what do you mean you want God to judge you according to your own righteousness and integrity? So let me clarify. What David does not mean is that he is perfect or that he is totally without sin. He does not want God to make his final judgment against him on the basis of his personal righteousness and integrity. We can look at that in countless places in in the Psalms. But Psalm 51 makes it perfectly clear. He says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So he knows he's a transgressor. He knows he's a sinner. He knows that he needs his record to be wiped clean. He knows that his sin is always before him. So what does he mean when he asks God to judge him in according to his righteousness and integrity? He simply means that he is not guilty of the slander that has been brought against him by Cush. In this specific situation, Lord, judge me according to my integrity because I am innocent in this case. That's what he's saying. So as a quick point of application, brothers and sisters, I urge you to live your life with that kind of integrity. Be the kind of person who is above reproach so that if someone were to slander you, you could say to God, Lord, you know that I'm innocent in this matter. You know it. Be like Paul, who was not aware of anything against himself. The Bible says to strive for holiness. Strive for a clean conscience. So I'm not suggesting that a clean conscience will save you, because it won't. Nor am I suggesting that any of us can walk a perfectly straight line. But here's my point. When you're in heaven, and you look back on your life, and you look at that line, I want you to be surprised that you were off course, so far as it depended, depends on you and your conscience. That you know that, to the best of your ability, you were walking a straight line, and you were trying to keep your conscience clean. And that's what David did, and that's why he could say to the Lord, Lord, you know I'm righteous in this matter. David continues making his plea to the judge in verses 6 through 7. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. 
Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, for you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you, and over it return on high. So David has examined himself. He is sure of his integrity. And now he says to the judge, in very clear terms, God, would you gather up the assembly? Take your place on the judgment seat. Put the court into session and let your fury out against these wicked men who are against me. David is like an abused child. And he's looking up to his Lord and judge with tears in his eyes. And he's saying, will you protect me from the wicked? Will you judge them? And so the stage is set. David is taking his refuge in the Lord, in the judge. So what's this judge going to do? That's point number three. God the judge. This is my longest point. So don't be surprised. Point number three. God the judge. What kind of judge is God? Let's start with David's words. Verses 9 through 11. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. Oh, righteous God, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Unlike human judges, the Lord knows the minds and the hearts of every individual. He has already scanned the deepest nooks and cranny of our innermost being, and the x-ray is, is clipped to his clipboard. Human judges, though, they have to dig through the endless details of a case to try and figure out who's in the right and who's in the wrong. But God, he already perfectly knows. And not only does God perfectly understand every case, but he will perfectly judge every single case. David tells us that God is a righteous judge. And that means he will protect the innocent and condemn the guilty. God will look over those who are in the courtroom and he's going to determine, you are righteous, you are righteous, you are not righteous, and so on. He's going to separate that courtroom. And David says that God will then be a shield to those who are innocent, which means he will protect them, that he will save them because they are upright in heart, meaning he's going to rescue them from their trouble. And finally, God will establish them meaning they're going to continue on with their life. But it won't be like that for those on the other side. The wicked will come to an end. They will be no more. Why? Because fully and finally rescuing the innocent requires ending the wicked. The playground bully must be stopped if you're going to protect the kids. And God doesn't do this matter-of-factly or just as an act of business. David says, God feels indignation every day about this. So have you noticed yet that David's hope for salvation depends on God's hatred for evil? The righteous judge is also the outraged 
executioner. He holds the gavel, and he also holds the axe. In verse 6, David says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. And in verse 11, he is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. I want to be perfectly clear. The way that God saves the righteous is by judging the guilty. God will save the righteous, and it will be a bloody day. How does that hit you? Does that offend you and your sensibilities? Is the God you worship allowed to be angry about sin? Is he allowed to feel indignation towards the wicked? Look at verses 12 through 13. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword, meaning he's going to sharpen his blade. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadliest weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Is your God allowed to do that? Is he allowed to put his foot down? Or is he just a God of love and endless acceptance? Friend, I don't know who your God is, but the true God of the universe, he is a God of love, which is precisely why he feels anger every day towards the wicked. His judgment is motivated by his love. A time will come when God is no longer willing to keep the peace with the unrepentant man who slanders and bullies and destroys his kids. In a time when corporal punishment makes us uncomfortable, I have to wonder how we feel about divine capital punishment. This idea bothers you. I wonder how you feel about the fact that the North Korean government intentionally starves their own people. They use them as slave labor to work their farms. They execute the families of anyone who tries to take any of the produce that they've labored to make. And they are forced to forage for flowers and bugs. And it's all on purpose. And a countless number of them starve to death. They have to go to work, passing the heaps of bodies, wondering, when am I going to be added to the top of that? I wonder how you feel about Islamic extremists who behead Christians because of their faith, or who target schools and go and shoot innocent children. I wonder how you feel about the sex slave industry, which preys on defenseless women and children for a profit. And it operates on an international scale, even today. I wonder how you feel about the abortion industry. I wonder if you feel what Tim was praying. And just like he said, Voiceless babies are sacrificed on the altar of convenience. They're doing it in their own backyard. They're doing it 20 minutes that way. I can promise you that the abused, they want to judge 
who feels some sort of indignation, some sort of anger. They want a judge who will take up their calls. And how can the righteous then not feel anger and indignation? How can we not cry out for justice against those who carry out such atrocities? How could a righteous God do anything but feel anger and wet his sword and prepare his bow? How can he do anything else? Yes, God is a righteous judge. And because he is a righteous judge, he feels indignation every day and the wicked will come to an end. And the day will come when he brings them to an account. And the wicked don't know it. But they are setting a trap for themselves. Look at verses 14 through 16. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Cush thinks he's going to come out ahead, right? If I slander and work out my mischievous plans and do violence, I'm going to be the winner here. The wicked man digs a pit to destroy his next victim. But in actuality, he is the one who's going to fall into that pit. God is keeping tally of his evil deeds. He knows exactly what he is doing. When the trap that is designed to hurt someone else it's accumulating wrath over his own head. And God will bring him to an account. He will be hurt because of his deeds. At first glance, in light of all this, the fact that God is a righteous judge seems like good news. It's difficult news. Some of it's hard to swallow. But I think we can see that a righteous judge ought to feel this sort of anger and indignation towards injustice. And so as a society, we say that we love justice. Yes, come, Lord. We, we want a righteous judge to come. Put the evil where they, uh, put them in their place. Give them what they deserve. But who do you think you are in this story? Do you think you're David? Are you righteous and innocent before God? When God tests your heart, and he separates you in that heavenly courtroom. Are you going to be standing among the righteous? Or are you going to be standing among the wicked? It's the only question that seems to matter. So here are some questions to help us figure out where we are. Have you ever murdered? Have you ever slandered? Have you ever gossiped? Have you ever lied? We can go further. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus takes the law one step further. 
It says that we won't just be held accountable to the letter of the law, but to the spirit of the law. So remember, God knows your heart and your mind. So have you ever hated someone in your heart? Have you ever had an outburst of anger and insulted your neighbor? Have you ever said, you fool, you idiot? Maybe. But let's broaden our view even more. James tells us in chapter 2, verse 10, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. You've broken one law, then you've become guilty of all of it. Whether it's the Ten Commandments or the law that is written on your heart, friends, you know that you are not righteous. You know. You've known what was right. You've known what you ought to do. And you've still done the wrong thing anyways. We all have. We all do. Because we're all sinners. So when you call for justice, do you not realize that you're the one who is on trial? Earlier it was good news that God is a righteous judge. But I want to tell you right now, I have some bad news. God is a righteous judge. And he feels indignation every day. He is sharpening a sword for the day of judgment. He is preparing his bow. His arrows are pointed at the wicked. And I want to make it perfectly clear to you, you are not David. You are the wicked. Unless Christ is your righteousness. You see, we know the rest of the story of the Bible. That God must give us a righteousness that is not our own. We see a hint of that truth here from David at the beginning of verse 12. If the wicked repent, they will not endure God's just wrath. To repent means to turn away from sin, but the question is, what do we turn towards? Well, just as Jenny read for us this morning, we must turn towards Christ. And when we turn to him, we gain a righteousness that comes not by works of the law, but by faith. When we repent of our sins and trust in him, God credits Jesus' righteousness to our account. So imagine the heavenly courtroom again. If you trust in Jesus, then you have gained an advocate before the judge of the universe. And Jesus will plead your case for you. He absorbed the wrath that you deserved. The blade and the arrow. Jesus took that in your place. And in exchange, he gave you righteousness that you could never own. He credited good works and innocence and integrity to you that you don't have. And God will honor him. He will honor his son and his work. And he will look at any and all of those who have received this righteousness. And he will credit them. He will account them as righteous. He will do for you what David says here in Psalm 7. He will save the upright in heart. He will be your shield. And he will deliver you from the wicked. Not because you are upright, but because Jesus is upright. 
And through Jesus, the bad news of God's wrath has become the good news of your deliverance. I want to say it again because that's a miracle. It's amazing. The bad news of God's wrath against the wicked has become the good news of your deliverance from the wicked. So we've seen that God is a righteous judge. He will establish the righteous. He will condemn the wicked. We've seen that although we are wicked in and of ourselves, that God will count us righteous because of Jesus. And so all of this is good. The wicked will come to an end and the righteous will live on. Praise God. Except that's not the case today. What's happening? What's the holdup? When is the judgment? Wickedness still thrives. I feel it. You feel it. When's the judgment? Well, notice in verse 6 that David says, a judgment has been appointed. I don't know what the appointed date is for that judgment. Neither did David. Neither do you. Neither did Jesus, who said no one knows about the day or hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So what I can tell you for sure is that the judgment is not guaranteed to take place in this life. Many Christians through the millennia have not experienced justice this side of heaven. And in all likelihood, we will not fully and finally experience justice this side of heaven either. So whether you're being slandered or you're enduring persecution or you're just suffering against sin and death in this fallen world, let me remind you, you're not alone. You're not alone. We are all waiting for deliverance. But we still wonder, why? Why doesn't God just deliver us? put an end to the wicked I mean David says God feels indignation towards the wicked every day so why the delay what's the point we're ready well he gives three reasons in the scripture or at least three that I've I'm going to note now we're almost done hang with me first God is waiting for people to come to repentance he's practicing forbearance which means he is holding off on his wrath so that the wicked will come to their senses. To be overly simple, it's, it's like when parents give children a chance to come clean before they discipline them. He's giving them time. Come confess your sins to me. Trust in my son. Listen to Second Peter. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as, as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It seems like God is taking forever to make things right, but in actuality, he's not being slow. He's being patient. And he's giving people an opportunity to repent. And Christian, aren't you glad that God did that for you? 
And while the Lord is still giving people time, shouldn't that be a kick in our pants to go and evangelize and disciple? The Lord is still forbearing. Go and tell it on the mountains. Let people know there's still time to repent. Come to your Father. The second reason for God's delay is that God is teaching Christians to rely on Him. Suffering and affliction, they train us up in holiness. And it builds up our endurance. And it gives us a steadfast faith. Look at James chapter 1, verse 2 through 5. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. These trials are good for us. He's preparing us so that we will be lacking in nothing. The third reason for the delay is we don't know the secret will of God. Some mysteries belong to the Lord, and the day of his final judgment is one of those mysteries. He knows the time, but he doesn't feel a need to explain himself. That's when we cling to Paul's words. Romans chapter 11, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Translation, God is God. Not me, not you. He knows what he's doing. So until that day, it means we must do what David did and ultimately what Christ did. We have to wait for his just judgment. So are you sick and sore? Are your enemies gathered about you? Are you broken for your brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted, who are being slandered, who are being abused? Well, then let us take refuge in the righteous judge of the universe. Peter says this about Jesus. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Just endure and keep entrusting yourself to him who judges justly. The day will come. The wicked will come to an end. Every wrong will be made right. The good guys win. The bad guys lose. And that is good news because you will be counted among the righteous. Praise be to God that Jesus has become the righteousness for us. We have a strong and perfect plea in our Savior. Because he lives, we will live. Because he is righteous, we will be counted righteous. So entrust yourself to him. Take refuge in him. And as you do, may the last words of this psalm be your words. Verse 17. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. 
Maranatha, Lord, come soon. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We ask you to help us to entrust ourselves to you, our just judge. Help us to take our refuge in you. Make us more steadfast through trial. And give us faith that looks towards the future where we can see the glory to come and rejoice in that now, no matter our circumstances. And again, we pray, Lord, would you come soon? Would you hear our case? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.